While dozens of large U.S. cities are making commitments to reach 100% renewable energy, fewer rural communities have made similar pledges. Is it because it's intrinsically harder? Warren McKenna and Luis Reyes are general managers of two very different rural electric cooperatives that suggest otherwise. Warren runs Farmers Electric Cooperative in southeastern Iowa, a small utility with more solar per customer than nearly any other U.S. electric company. Luis runs Kit Carson Electric Cooperative in New Mexico, with plans laid to get 100% of its daytime electricity from solar by 2022. In this conversation, a few clean energy friends and I talk with Warren and Luis about their success at advancing renewable energy in America's rural areas. A quick recording note, this podcast was originally recorded as a webinar conversation. As a result, some questions come from attendees. Also, our apologies for slightly lower audio quality. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. Warren, thank you again for taking the time to join this call and to share some of your story. I was hoping to start with some basic background. So you, Farmers Electric Cooperative in Iowa, has been in the top 10 for solar watts per customer for several years, unlike Kit Carson Electric and their story, which is, you know, in New Mexico in the sunny Southwest, you're not in a sunny place, but you also didn't have to overcome what a lot of co-ops do, which is these long-term contracts that restrict where they can get their power from. But I'm just kind of curious, like, why did Farmers Electric get interested in adopting solar energy in the first place? And what are some of the things that you've done in order to get all of that solar on the Farmers Electric system? Farmers is uh, 100 years old this year second oldest in the nation, I believe. In 2008, we set a vision to do, reduce our outside energy purchases by 25% by 2025. And part of that vision was um, three-part meter measurement, monitoring, and energy efficiency, and renewable energy. And so we looked at wind. We're not in a good wind area here. So solar is taken over. Two solar farms, uh, a community solar project with 100 plus owners, solar schools, site solar, about 35 sites, uh, 20% of the membership owns solar, no rate increases, four out of five of our board of directors own solar, I own solar, um, there's about 5 million um, invested in local solar, 20% of our power is local. Largest concentration of all natural and organic producers in this area. We spill over into three counties, and IOU that neighbors us also has a very high concentration in this area of solar due to the fact that some of these producers that have requested and also climbed on board solar. About 25 battery sites that we maintain. We're in REL Top 10 uh, Green Power Project for customer participation, three SEPA awards. That's just a highlight there. That's a lot of great highlights. You know, one question I have is a lot of utilities, when they start talking about going solar, think about just building it at the utility level. And a number of the things that you listed, you have customers either participating through a community solar project or having solar on their own sites or solar and batteries. Like you said, your board members have solar. What was the motivation behind that? And how did you make it possible for customers to do that in a way that I feel like a lot of other utilities haven't made a point of doing? That's a good question. It started, these organic and all natural producers came to us and they wanted solar and either we owned it 
and participated with them or they'd own it and circumvent the co-op basically. We chose to take a um, partnership with our customers. We're owned by the customer and, and it's customer driven. So, I was just meeting with some folks in northern Minnesota yesterday about trying to develop solar. It was uh, on tribal lands in particular, but they're served by an electric co-op. And the co-op there, they described to me that when they went to talk to the co-op about doing solar, the, the co-op responded by saying things like, well, you know, you're going to cost the other customers more if you install solar, kind of giving them a guilt trip. And I'm curious, um, what it, what, why did you perceive that differently when you uh, had customers coming to you to wanting to do solar? What was, you know, how were you able to see that differently than maybe some of these other co-ops have seen solar? Well, so the way we buy power, we only uh, contract for 50% of our power firm. We're an interruptible load. We take a lot of wind and off peak. I don't know. It just works great. I got a call from someone out in Montana with uh, thousands of members and they wondered how we achieved such a high participation rate in our green power project when they couldn't get one. You know, it's, it's a matter of starts from the top down, how you promote it and whether you want to move it forward, I guess. Just clarification on some of the terms when you talk about things like firm power, uh, you're talking about whether or not that energy is stuff that you have to purchase or is when you talk about flexibility that you have the flexibility to buy power from the grid one day on a cloudy day, but then not to buy it on a sunny day when you can produce more locally. Is that right? To a certain extent, uh, the group buys blocks of power. And as a group, 50% of that, some of those blocks are tied to a coal plant in Illinois. It, just the raw energy that we buy, most of it's coming in at peak time, those blocks that we buy. But who knows? It's uh, split across the group. So only 50% of it um, we're obligated to purchase. It gives us individually some flexibility. Could you talk a little bit more about what the plans are for Farmers Electric in the next few years in terms of either expanding solar or renewables or what it is that members are asking for? We're producing, uh, you know, some days, 100% of our power. So plan moving forward is going to have to include some, some kind of storage. So we're actively looking at storage. You're always looking for a site for more solar. You know, we're participating through our trade association across Iowa to help grow the industry. I think that's probably a pretty important part of it. Um, I'm working with the city of Bloomfield for their 100% goal, State Center, Iowa. We're working with them on a one megawatt project. Decorah, Iowa, I've been working with them on their municipalization effort. Yeah. Why don't we do a little Q&A for Warren while we have him here? Questions for Warren? It's Ray Schmetz in Rochester, Minnesota. You asked the question about the co-op reaction to not imposing a significant fixed charge on those having solar or bio or something on an independent basis, making the argument that this requires the co-op to maintain expensive facilities and sources of power to the detriment of other users. Could you comment on how that argument has gone with your users and whether your evidence suggests that's true? I tell you how we address that here and have from the beginning is a, I want to call it right sizing. So I take and evaluate anyone that wants to put solar on and you cannot exceed your peak demand in the previous 12 months. You cannot export beyond your monthly usage. 
or your rate drops on that buyback. There's just a number of tiny, small restrictions. It's $450 to interconnect. You have to participate in our green power project at $3 a month. We don't want to 1099 anyone. We don't want to make large suppliers out of anyone. So you don't have these medium farm putting a, a lot of solar and monopolize that section of line. So we've watched that from the get-go. Other questions for Warren? Well, just just briefly, um, this is just Mike in, in Colorado. Uh, you mentioned participation from the state rural electric association, and I was just interested if you could say a little bit more about how that happened, what kind of involvement they've had. So our state association, they have been helpful. Two years ago, we lobbied for our trade association, which we helped found the Iowa Solar Energy Trade Association and the Iowa Association of Electric Co-ops helped push through a cent and a half PTC. So there have been a few co-ops that have grabbed a hold of that. Our second solar farm, we're receiving a cent and a half production tax credit on that. And that's due to a partnership with the Iowa Solar Energy Trade Association and the Iowa Association of Electric Co-op and legislation that we got to open up some of the wind credits for solar. Warren, you had said that there was something else that you wanted to chat about. Was it about this trade organization or was there something else that you wanted to expand upon a little bit that may not have been in the questions that I initially asked? No, that's great. And it'd be a great finish here for me with the Iowa Solar Energy Trade Association, which we've founded. There's about 48 members in that. So those contractors employ about 700 people. They have about $123 million invested in over four years in uh, solar in Iowa. And we're the only utility on the board, actually the only utility as a member. We've personally down here helped three of the contractors launch very large businesses. So I feel pretty good about that support from us. Well, thank you so much, Warren. I'm going to switch and ask a few questions of Luis here to introduce the work that he and Kit Carson have been doing, but then we'll open it up at the end again for Q&A to both of you. So Luis, you know, you've set a goal for the co-op down there in New Mexico to get 100% of your daytime electricity from solar resources by 2022. And I just thought it'd be interesting for you to talk a little bit about how Kit Carson is going to get there. You know, are you building one big project? Is it lots of little projects? How are you looking to reach that goal? So yeah, John, our goal, uh, and it's really the membership goal. So we had a series of discussions with our membership to really start migrating from fossil fuel type power plants to local generation. So we decided as a community that solar would be our fuel source of choice. We then set out a goal that by 2022 in building primarily one megawatt of solar arrays located around our system. So we're going to build 35 to 40. Our daytime peak is about 35 in the summer, 40 in the winter. And so that will be about 7 to 8 megawatts that we build every year until we attain that goal. The other reason we wanted to do one megawatt arrays is first, they fit easily into the system to interconnect. And we also wanted to be inclusive. You know, we could have put one big array out on acres and acres of property, but that kind of seemed impersonal. We really wanted solar energy to be personal, that there was an array kind of in, in your neighborhood serving your needs specifically, and people then take ownership of that because that's our array. So we really did it twofold for two primary reasons, and uh, then we're off and running. 
I was curious, one of the things that Warren talked about that Farmers Electric has done is there seems to be such a wide variety of ways that they're doing solar. They have a community solar project. They've got member-owned solar. Some members are even doing energy storage. Is that part of what you're doing at Kit Carson, or is it mostly these co-op-owned arrays that are going to be distributed around the service territory? Most of them will be co-op-owned arrays. There is discussion, and maybe several years down the road, is converting a couple of these to community solar where members can actually purchase panels, and then we can go into a virtual net metering scenario. We've been able to try all different business models. We own our own. So we take power through uh, purchase power agreements. We have the only community solar array in New Mexico, and then we do have about 1% of our membership has behind the meter. Uh, with some trying to sell a storage uh, on off-peak times. So after we've kind of analyzed which is the best business model, we chose Kit Carson will supply it. Now, we're not opposed to these other uh, models, but I think the one thing that's important is we needed to make sure that solar was inclusive. And, and our thought was if the low and fixed income cannot participate in the solar programs, then the program is, is no different than what we have today. So by Kit Carson doing it, and it becoming part of just the natural energy or the normal energy that we deliver, everyone, regardless of your background type of energy, your economic uh, standing, gets solar energy. Now, one thing that Warren talked about, and it's a word that came up a couple different times, was flexibility. And he mentioned that very little of the power that they supply is on a long-term contract. But as I understand it, that was not the case for Kit Carson as of a few years ago. And I wondered if you could explain a little bit about what the limitations were and how you were able to get some of that flexibility yourself. So pre-2016, we were in a contract that uh, extended to 2040 and had been asked by our power supplier to go to 2050. And our members and our board just thought that was too long. After some negotiations, we actually petitioned and got permission to exit out of our power contract. So we paid an exit fee to our power supplier, then found a new power supplier, Guzman Renewable Energy, and entered into a 10-year contract. So we kind of displaced a 35- to 45-year contract with a 10-year contract. And the other component was, in our old contract, we only could build up to 5% of our energy could come from renewable resources. So if we did all our 5% now... We couldn't do any more solar till the end of the contract or if we had large growth. With the new contract, it's shorter term, 10 years, and we've negotiated that we can have 100% daytime solar, which kind of equates to about 50 to 60% of our total energy needs. So we gained a whole lot of flexibility of basically just buying out of our old contract. You know, Warren had talked about that flexibility as kind of one of the key elements in what they've been able to do. I'd be curious, is the economics of solar a really big player in your ability to do this change? You know, and and I think you prefaced this conversation today with the fact that your members were really interested in this. What would you describe as sort of the key element of the success in this effort to go to 100% daytime solar? Solar is a product that appeals to different sets of members. Right, so some is economics. So our first round of solar projects are five cents. Five cents is competitive with what we're getting off the market from coal. May not be competitive with natural gas, but I think our community doesn't really look at all the economics. So it does take care of the economics. We have a sector that really believes that climate change is going to be a big factor going forward. So 
in our planning process, climate change is definitely an element we plan for. It's reliable. I think a knock on solar, at least in the industry, was it wasn't reliable. We're going to back that up with storage and off the grid. So I think part of the success is we just had an education campaign with our members and it appealed to them for different reasons. And we just embraced that instead of try to tell them what we thought or why we thought solar was good. So I think the two-way communications with our members was paramount in making this a success. My last question before we come back to what some other folks in this call might be interested in chatting with you about is focused on kind of what's the long-term vision. So you have this near-term goal in five years, and it's a remarkable one. I think most of us would like to see our utilities or our community making a similar commitment. What's next? What's the next iteration of this change? Well, I think the next iteration is going to be storage. And we're actually talking to storage companies and, and looking at the value stack that each brings and then analyze what's the best option for us to go forward. I think tied to storage is uh, how, how we integrate EVs. Right? If, you, if you talk to different folks ar- around the industry, it's going to be here next year, it's going to be here 10 years. We want to position our co-op in a position that maybe EVs become, becomes our storage. So I think our next evolution is the storage element. And how that comes about, I think, is really going to be driven by the market. If we can get batteries be cost competitive, that drives it. If we have a real uh, kind of take on EVs in rural areas, that's also going to be an element. And I think two things primarily, the load will grow because now we have charging. But then maybe we can use that storage when they're not using it, and hopefully it's at peak and discharged into the system. So I think it's really trying to create a sustainable community given the technology we have today. You know, my talk a year from now may change if technology changes that gives us more opportunities that has longer storage or better storage or maybe a different storage medium. But that's really our goal is to create a resilient system that we can actually, if we needed to, separate from the main grid and then use the grid as basically our backup when everything else fails. Well, it's a very cool future that you're talking about, Luis. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots groups. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute to go to ILSR.org and click on the donate button. That's ILSR.org. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. I just want to open it up now if, if folks have questions for Luis about the, what Kit Carson has been working on or back to Warren about Farmers Electric. Hi, this is Sean Armstrong from Redwood Energy, and I was interested in more of the comparison between natural gas and solar in the pricing. And could you expand a little bit on exactly what kind of installation pricing you're seeing for the two? 
And could you talk a little bit about your load balancing then for night times and the cost of energy at that time? So the natural gas, our power supplier is now responsible, and, and basically our power supplier is a broker, is responsible for the off-peak or non-solar. So they've gone out in the market and they've actually uh, purchased futures or hedged to get us uh, natural gas prices for those time periods. All that is done at the wholesale side with our transmission provider. And so in our transmission contract, the balancing authority in New Mexico is PNAM, Public Service in New Mexico. We have a fee structure tied for when we just don't for scheduling. So if we hit our schedule within a certain percentage, uh, we're fine. If we under or over schedule, there's either benefits to the co-op or there's penalties. But I think to keep the pricing, and the pricing for natural gas is relatively low, our power supplier has gone out and bought some futures to solidify those prices into the later years. The other thing we've done is we purchase our annual power, what we need, on an annual basis. And so we do hedge within that year to make sure that we uh, get the low natural gas prices. The thing that we're trying to, uh, I guess, get better at is really the forecasting. Because you do have to give the power supplier how much energy you need. The forecasting then becomes problematic because you can have an estimate of how many daytime hours you're going to have that have sunlight. But there may be just weather patterns that kind of defeat those forecasts. And then we're on the hook for some penalties. So right now, it's not a perfect picture, but we are gaining intelligence going forward that if we forecast better, we'll always maintain real low prices on the natural gas that will complement the five cent solar. I see. So what do you think is your average per kilowatt? If five cents is the solar, what's natural gas at? So natural gas, and again, probably about three and a half to four cents. And I want to say maybe half of that is probably wheeling fees because we do have to wheel it. Uh, the five cents is really just bus bar since it's distributed. So if you took the wheeling fees, you know, natural gas is probably going to be half of what solar is. But the reality is you have to wheel that power. So it's lower probably by a penny, a penny and a half, depending on the, uh, the month. So what is your long-term plan for nighttime energy if you're going to try to wean yourself of natural gas? We are looking at wind, and there's a lot of wind in New Mexico on the east side. And so if we had a combination of, of solar, wind, and then back that up with battery, you get pretty close to really not needing any power off the grid. But right now, transmission is the issue. So it's on our radar screen, but it's not there yet because of the infrastructures not readily available. So if you look out there and you think, when do you have the transmission lines? When do you have access to the wind? And when do you have your batteries? When about is your year? When are you balanced? So 2022 is our solar goal. We'll probably start integrating batteries probably 2019, 2020. Uh, wind really depends on when the transmission facilities are built. We have one underway in the middle of the state. That may be two or three years away. But once it's built, I would say within three years, we can start bringing wind via P&M's transmission into northern New Mexico. Okay, so it's three years for wind, two years for batteries, five years for solar. So 2022, it looks like you have maybe the capacity to be a balanced grid on renewables. That's awesome. Great story. Other questions, either for Luis or for Warren? I have a question for Luis. Uh, this is Jess Smythe again in Colorado. I'm a member of a cooperative that's also buys its power currently from Tri-State. So it is uh, limited by that 5% self-generation cap. So I just wondered if you could say any more about conversations you've had with 
other tri-state uh, limited co-ops in Colorado, New Mexico, uh, or, the, or the region about what you all have done and the opportunities for the co-ops to kind of follow? In the discussions we've had, and they've been more high level, I do think there's a desire to, at minimum, stay with tri-state for that 5% to be raised to 10% and then incrementally increase that as uh, renewables gets more prevalent in those areas. So I, I do see that co-ops, different than the past, are really embracing renewables. And I think some, not all, would like a higher cap. It would be my hope that Tri-State would listen to its members and increase it. And then when you hit the next level, then re-examine it and determine what goes on. Our end goal is really to try to replicate this, right? To say Co-op X or Rural Community X, you can use this. These are best practices. You may have to tweak them. We want to share our success here with others. So we've been focusing on the delivery aspect versus the environmental impact. But I do think because it's now price competitive, there's no reason for either those co-ops in Colorado and Tri-State to really embrace a higher standard, a higher percentage of renewables on your system. And, and that's what I'm hearing from a few co-ops now. There's some that are let Tri-State deliver all the power, and, and that's fine. You know, that goes to the self-governance rule that each individual community decide what's best for them. Any last word, I guess, from Warren or from Luis on either of the experiences of your co-ops moving toward renewables? It's just yeah, interesting yeah. that we're both sharing more of an inside-out model than an outside-in. So the kilowatts generated from the inside are local. It's impressive that that larger co-op has taken on the goals that it has. I think, that, again, storage, electric cars, I'm excited. We're going to have plenty of growth. It's actually a great time to be in the business. And, and John, I, I guess I'd close. I agree with Warren. I think it is a great time. I think the difference, though, this is realistic. This isn't pie in the sky. Now, the technology is there. The workforce is there. You have a lot of communities who are now embracing it. You have big corporations like Apple and Facebook saying, we want renewables. So I kind of want to leave... Our story is really a real story, not something that we hope happens. We're actually doing. As we talk, we're having a raise built. I really do think this is the real deal. And this is kind of the future in energy is kind of giving it back to the people instead of having a central source and delivering it, having more distributed system that is local and controlled by the local community. Well, thank you so much, Warren and Luis, for taking the time to chat with us. Luis, I particularly appreciate your send-off because it's like ILSR's mission statement said very succinctly, so I'm going to have to save that for future use. This is John Farrell, director of ILSR's Energy Democracy Initiative. I and some friends were speaking with Warren McKenna and Luis Reyes about their rural electric cooperatives' shift toward renewable energy. For more information about rural electric cooperatives and clean energy, including a video story about Farmers Electric Cooperative, a report on the barriers facing cooperatives, and a map of many of these rural utilities' community solar projects, visit ILSR.org. While you're at our website, you can also find more than 50 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.